This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Scripture teaches, and therefore all Christians confess, that our Lord Jesus is true God and true man. As God the Son incarnate, we understand that He has been in communion with God the Spirit from all eternity. It is one thing to confess that truth, but it is another to see how that truth manifests itself in the life, ministry, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. We have glimpses of that communion, for example, in His conception, at His baptism, in His title, Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, which means the Anointed One, and in His temptation. But perhaps we do not appreciate as well as we should the vital role played by God the Spirit in the life of Jesus the Messiah. Steve Baugh is professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He teaches our course on the Gospels. He has also recently published a major new commentary on Ephesians. It's available through Logos.com. That's L-O-G-O-S dot com. Search for Baugh, B-A-U-G-H, and Ephesians. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Well, this is an interesting topic, and it's a little bit of a challenge, as you and I have discussed off-air, as they say. But I think we'll make good progress, so let's just dive into Luke 4.14, where Scripture says in the English Standard Version, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and... He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this language is reflected also in our confessions. We'll come back to that in a minute. But as we look at this language here and this narrative, what are we to make of it? Maybe we could think a little bit about the Old Testament background, but what does Luke want us to take away from this narrative about the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Luke's gospel is among the other Gospels, among the New Testament Gospels, is the one where he brings out the connection of Christ and the Spirit more than the others. So it's a distinctive of Luke, and it follows also in the book of Acts, you know, Luke's second book. Which is where we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yes, at Pentecost. And this is all part of that development. You know, what's interesting about what you just read that I want to pause and think about for a moment is that in the Old Testament with David, he was anointed with oil by Samuel as king. So the word anointed is the word we get Christ from that in Greek. And in Greek, Christ just means oily. (laughs) Yeah, someone upon whom oil has been poured. Yeah, so it really didn't mean anything to a Greek non-Christian, but then In the Old Testament, once you're anointed with oil like this, it's a sign of your kingship. Interestingly, Christ is baptized, but he is not anointed with oil anywhere. You don't have that ceremony with Christ. 
Instead, he has the real anointing of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we have here. Because in the Old Testament, that oil anointing of the king was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon the king to equip him for his office. Christ, our Lord, did not have a symbol. He had the reality of God's personal presence with him in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're reading about here is, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. That's the anointing. He is anointed as king here. This is a royal coronation, as it were, in our terminology, anointing, that he may conduct his royal kingly mission as it starts out from Luke 4 here in particular. And it's not as if this is the first moment in his existence where he has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. After all, we're talking about God the Son, who has been, as I mentioned in the introduction, in eternal fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so now we're seeing this reflected in various ways in his life, in the virgin conception, the overshadowing of the Spirit, and in his baptism. And now Luke here says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, and we have to capitalize that S recognize that's the Holy Spirit. So he's operating. What does that mean to say he's operating or returning in the power of the Holy Spirit? Before I answer that, if I can shoehorn in another answer or an observation. Sure. We typically in theology speak about the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to believers, and we tend to restrict his working to that work of the third person of the Trinity in redemption. But here, and the one that you mentioned, and also in Matthew 1, the conception of Christ through the Spirit, and his baptism with the Spirit, and his anointing with the Spirit here, and Christ's work through the power of the Spirit on earth is a vital part of the Holy Spirit's working in the life of of Christ and therefore of our redemption. So the Holy Spirit has been active, fully involved with the accomplishment of our redemption, not only its application to us. Now, going back to your question is the importance of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Christ in the places you mentioned. This is because Christ is truly human. When we talk about Jesus Christ and use his human name, Jesus, we're talking about a human being who is real human being. In his divine person, so the Son of God as a equal with the Father in being and power and glory, he is incarnate as a true human being, and that human being is equipped with the personal presence of God through the Holy Spirit to accomplish his messianic task. So it is, you know, a frequent thing you'll read in the Gospels about he was doing this in the power of the Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit, was with him in fullness, and that he did things by the Spirit. And that's because anytime God does anything, the three persons of the Trinity are involved. But in his humanity, he was equipped with the Spirit to be able to do things that a human cannot do of himself. So that's how I understand it. It's a great mystery we're talking about. I'm not pretending to solve anything other than just describe the biblical language and what we can know about it to the extent we can understand it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And Jesus here in the synagogue invokes or quotes and then applies to himself Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do something very specific, specifically to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. 
to do more than that, recover sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Ministers can proclaim, prophets can proclaim, but only a Savior can set at liberty. Only a Savior can recover sight to the blind. So he brings in the power of the new creation. You know, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and he is, I'm sure you've already discussed this with others on this show, he's a bit of a mystery to us. The Bible really doesn't tell us much about the Holy Spirit. We hear him speak, of course, because all Scripture is breathed out by God through the Spirit, and prophets speak through the Spirit. So you're hearing the Holy Spirit when you read Scripture. But I like to think, really, there's three particular areas where he is kind of characterized. He represents the personal presence of God. So where you have the Spirit, you have God personally present. He's the power of God. I'll refer later to a a passage in Luke 11 where he, he uses the phrase, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, and then the Matthew parallel says, if I by the Spirit of God. So you have this really interesting metaphor of the Holy Spirit as the finger of God. So you should see him as kind of the point man, as it were. And that's the language used for the inscribing of the law yeah. at Sinai, yeah. that the Spirit did that, yeah. or the finger. Yeah. So that's important because that helps us think about Scripture, that when we're reading and hearing Scripture, we're reading and hearing that which was given to us by the Holy Spirit. Yes. So there's a lot of interest in contemporary Christianity, modern Christianity particularly, since the 18th and 19th centuries, in sort of accessing the Holy Spirit immediately. And I think we want to say, maybe not so fast, we come to know the Spirit through the Word and in conjunction with or through the person of God the Son. You want to keep the Son and the Spirit together. And you see that here in Luke and, as you were saying, Luke 11 and in Matthew. So our confessional documents, for example, Westminster Confession 8.3 says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and a surety. That's a rich statement. That's a big statement, isn't it? (laughs) And you and I have discussed some of these very things as well in earlier episodes. A mediator, that's someone who stands between God and us. And a surety, what is a surety? Surety is a guarantor, one who in his person guarantees the effectiveness of an oath. He's the one who takes upon himself the obligation and fulfills it. So you're talking about the Holy Spirit's involvement with Christ being mediator. That's stated explicitly in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now you'll notice that Christ is on earth, but the author of Hebrews has been saying, and will say further, that yes, he sacrificed himself on the cross on earth, but through the eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, his sacrifice was valid in heaven. He's the link between this earthly sacrifice and the tabernacle that is not made by hands, the very presence of God, that he sacrificed himself in the presence of God through the Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit is active and involved with every aspect of Christ's life, from his conception and birth all the way to his work on the cross, validating, confirming, making it an effective ministry and linking with God the Father. So if you would have the Holy Spirit, you must have Christ. And if you would have the Father, you must have Christ. So that's He's important. He's the mediator. He is the mediator. Yeah. So really, Christ is central to all of this, because there are oneness Pentecostals who want to access the Spirit without distinguishing properly between the Father and the Son. And there are other folks who talk about the Spirit and almost sort of set Jesus to one side. But in so doing, they really haven't been faithful to what you were just reading in Hebrews, nor what we were reading in Luke 4 or Isaiah 61. There's also, as you were mentioning earlier, Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus, where it says, beginning in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John, as you know, in verse 14, would have prevented him, saying, better for you to baptize me than for I to baptize you. But Jesus says in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, that is, John consented, in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So that episode, again, is rich with Old Testament imagery, I think. Help us understand that a bit. Well, where to start, except the prominent one is the floodwaters, baptism in the floodwaters of judgment with Noah. And of course, the sign that God's judgment had relented was the dove being released and then not coming back. Here, the dove lands on Christ. I mean, this is why the Spirit takes on this form of a dove to allude to that episode. So it's not random. It's not arbitrary. This is a rich signal here in this episode. Yeah, there's no reason for the Holy Spirit to take on the form of a dove unless there's some meaning to it that we can see, because he didn't do that for Christ's sake. He did it for our sake. We could understand what's happening in the baptism. So this is a sign of God's approval. His approval, and that Christ is symbolically being baptized, which later on he'll say, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized, which means the cross, his death, his substitutionary atonement. Well, his baptism represents that as a sacrament pointing ahead to his death on the cross. Now the dove lands upon him as a sign that when he completes that work, he will find God's favor and enter into new creation. Because after the flood, the world now was renewed. It's basically a new creation after Noah's flood. If you want to picture this, this is a mental image I have that I hope it's not idolatrous, but it's, it's just a mental image that I have. Wherever the Holy Spirit is and you see him walking through a desert, behind him sprout flowers and animals start leaping for joy. It's like walking through a black and white world and all of a sudden it's all color and gorgeous you know, streams with fish jumping through it. He's the agent of new creation. Where he is, you have this creative presence of God powerfully working to renew things and to bring them into life and life abundantly. And so this is a picture in the dove coming upon him. He's going to bring in the new creation. The Father's pleased with him and will be pleased with his sacrifice on the cross so that he can bring in the new creation with us as citizens redeemed and renewed in resurrection. 
So this is the inauguration, then, of this New Covenant ministry and the blessings of the New yeah. Covenant that are coming in his wake. Yeah. And that's all being symbolized. It symbolizes. There in that episode. It's a sacramental episode for him. And there, again, if we would have the Spirit, we must have Christ. And the Spirit here is pointing to Jesus. This is the Savior. This is the representative. This is the last Adam who's going to inaugurate, initiate the new creation. It's hard for me to imagine any Christian not wanting Christ. Well, you know, there's a temptation, a tendency sometimes to look for power, Mm, right? And uh, to have a sort of second blessing, and people are promising prosperity. And the cross and Jesus doesn't really fit well in that narrative. So on the surface, it might look pious to talk about the Spirit, but any approach to the Spirit without Christ is really missing something fundamental. Well, Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then you have the whole imagery of the picture of the Spirit hovering over. What is significant about that? I mean, there's so many. We could do a whole episode, really, on the virgin conception. The founder of our seminary, J. Gresson Machen, wrote an entire volume dedicated to defending the virgin birth because it was being attacked then, and I suppose now, by those who put themselves in judgment over Scripture. So when you walk through this narrative in Matthew with your students or when they approach you about this, what are the things that you sort of point them to? Well, the passage in Matthew is a little sketchy in the sense of an outline, and it's filled out with Luke when Mary is told about conception through the Spirit. And the text says, and therefore that which the child which you are going to bear will be called holy. And in that language, it's kind of an Old Testament kind of language. To be called holy means to be holy. It's just an idiom that's carried over so that he will be holy. He will be different. And so Christ's conception means that he is not born in sin. He is born a true human from Mary. So he has a true human nature, but a human nature that's unlike any other human after Adam, because not a carrying over Adamic corruption into his being. So he is holy from his conception. He is distinct as a human being. And without sin. Without sin, he's blameless, undefiled, quoting now Hebrews 7, so that he is separated from us and yet becomes one of us, sharing in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2. So you can just read Hebrews for a lot of this. He's just interpreting the reality of what's conveyed in the Gospels. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary California for Christ his gospel and his church
And it's essential that we have a Messiah, a substitute, a mediator, who is like us in every respect, sin accepted. Because it was humanity, human beings who, having been created in righteousness and true holiness, who rebelled against God and brought judgment, sin, and death. And so it had to be a true human to make reparations to pay the penalty and to be our substitute and bear the wrath that we had earned. Hebrews 10 now. The blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin, and the annual sacrifice at the uh, Day of Atonement with Israel brought only reminder of sin. It did not actually remove guilt, whereas the sacrifice of Christ removed guilt. So he was blameless, and he was the spotless Lamb of God who carried away the sin of the world by substituting himself for us. And that doesn't grow old. He is the basis for our continuing in life. So, you know, to embrace the gospel is not something you do at the beginning of your Christian life. It's something you do every day so that you can grow in gratitude and Christ-likeness to also be filled with the Spirit and walk in his teachings. So again, the Holy Spirit is essential to the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, but in this instance, in the conception, in the holy, sinless conception of Jesus' true humanity. Yes. So he can conduct his mediator function, his office, without any possibility of failure so that he would actually become, as the confession that you read earlier, he would become the guarantor of the new covenant. That is, by the way, simply citing Hebrews 7.22. We really should just be talking about Hebrews, not Luke (laughs) and Matthew. (laughs) Well, but I think you're making a really important point, and that is when we read Scripture, we do want to keep these things together. We have the gospel narratives, but we also have the epistles also given by the Holy Spirit to help us understand these. So you're modeling for us how to read the epistles and the gospels together, because there has been a tendency and a temptation sometimes. And I hear folks sometimes say, well, I just believe the Gospels. I don't believe the epistles. That's just Paul or that's just Hebrews. What really matters is the Gospels. But you really can't do that. No, you can't do that. They're not designed to be read that way. It's like the Gospels present the beginning of the story, and the book of Acts carries the story forward and transitions into the epistles. And the epistles are, you know, now we're getting to the meat of the story that relates to us here in the world. Here I'm speaking from California the opposite side of the earth from where all these things took place, as one who has been claimed by the Lord. Yeah, we are living fulfillment <laughs> of the very thing that We're was said evidence. in Acts, right? Yeah. Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the, of the yeah, earth. Yeah. Well, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> right? The book of Acts was right, and Jesus was right. He conquered all the earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, even to California, yeah. the far-flung corner of the world that wasn't even known about in their day. As we sit here in North America, we might think of places like Africa or India as the uttermost parts of the earth, but in fact, that's backwards. Oh, yeah. Relative to the world in which Scripture was given, we are the uttermost parts. Those places were relatively proximate. Oh, yeah, and they knew about them. They knew, exactly. Plato had uh, awareness of Indian teaching. Herodotus had encountered Indian Brahmins in Egypt. So they knew, here is Egypt, North Africa. So they encountered Africans and Indians, you know, from India. But North America, no. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in using the same message which the apostles preached to bring you and me and the listener and so many others that we'll never know, at least not in this life, to true faith and new life. One of the things— So now we're going to get to Revelation, right? Almost. 
One more question. One of the things that we've sort of been hinting around at that we need to look at directly, and that is the role of the Spirit in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where we do see him acting out or manifesting his role as the second Adam or the last Adam, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Well, Luke 4, at which we've looked before, says in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you... I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. In verse 11, on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here we have this contest between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, a temptation of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is a vital part of this whole narrative. He is. He has initiated Christ's work as second Adam, that he would undergo the same temptations that Adam underwent, whether he would love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love his neighbor as himself. And Adam failed, and Christ didn't. He won the victory. He defeated Satan at that point in time in the temptation. This was all the Holy Spirit further bringing Christ into what his messianic work means. And it means that he would be the fountain of a new human race. He would be the second Adam, the first human, as it were, in particular in resurrection through the Spirit, Romans chapter 1. But also you have this picture of it's a little bit different and a lot shorter in Mark, where it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And that's all you get in Mark, is that very brief account. But it says wilderness twice, you really should think desert, and wild animals. Matthew and Luke, the other Gospels mentioning the temptation, don't talk about wild animals. Wild animals are a sign of curse. Wilderness or wasteland is a sign of being under God's curse. So the Holy Spirit drove him out. So the second Adam begins his ministry, because this is right after his baptism, by seeing what his ministry is going to be, and that is taking upon himself the curse that Adam incurred upon us and reversing it by succeeding in bringing us into the paradise of God out of the wilderness. So Adam sinned, left the garden into wilderness. It actually says he was cast out. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible as Mark uses here for the Holy Spirit casting Jesus out into the wilderness. So there's this ironic reversal. Adam was cast out of the garden. Christ is cast out of God's presence, as it were, you know, figuratively after the baptism into the wilderness in order to reverse that casting out. 
And to do that, he must be undergirded by the Spirit yes. as he comes into direct conflict with the evil one. Now, you and I and the listener certainly struggle with sin, and we are all, each of us, tempted by sin, our own corruption, and maybe in some instances even directly the evil one. Who knows? But none of us, I think, has faced this kind of temptation this way. This is a really an extraordinary story, isn't it? He takes him to a high place and in one instant shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And you and I know what we would have said. Well, there must be a way to make this work, (laughs) right? Well, that's what Adam did, right? We can make this work, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus knows what the evil one is up to. He knows he's a liar and the father of lies, and he repudiates him, even though he has to believe what he has not yet seen in his earthly ministry. Well, yeah, and Jesus could actually have said, I don't need you to give them to me. I'm going to take them from you. Exactly. All authority in heaven and earth will be given to me once I succeed But he doesn't say that. He shows that he is submissive to his father by saying, you should worship God only. He doesn't give in to Satan even for a moment. I think it's a good example for us, but also just shows his holiness. There's no pride. There's no talking back. He's just not interested in what Satan has to offer. And this is through the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has so made him powerful that temptation is real but it also is impossible for him to sin through the power of God. He resists it on the basis of the Word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for adding that. If you only remember that of the temptation, you remembered something really significant. As our representative, as our federal head, as the last Adam, who really conquered, and you and I and the listener, we are united to Christ by that same Spirit and indwelled by that same Spirit. We face temptations, certainly not the significant, but the answer is the same. We resist temptation through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us by the grace of God through Christ our Lord. If we remember that, we will grow more holy, and also our love for our Savior and just desire to please Him out of gratitude. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Last, we want to look at a fascinating passage in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, where Scripture says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. What does this tell us about the relation between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? This is a passage that requires some care in handling, but frankly is pretty clear. It requires care because it's a very symbolic passage. Obviously, this is referring to the Lord Jesus. Interestingly, that's made clear in chapter 22. It says, I, Jesus, sent my angel. And so you hear that this is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking through a visionary, symbolic experience that John had, much like a dream. He sees symbolic things in a dreamlike experience that have meaning in our world. The meaning is the risen Lord Jesus does not actually have seven horns, but a horn represents sovereign power. Later on in Revelation and earlier in Daniel, a horn represents kings or kingdoms or kingly power, and that's what we have here. Seven horns is the perfection or fullness of power. So our risen Lord Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. So you can just go to Matthew 28, and this is a visionary portrait of that. 
But then it says he has the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, the ESV that you read says seven spirits, and the spirits there is uh, lowercase. And some people think these are angels. Well, if you go to Revelation 1-4, you have a Trinitarian benediction. And by that, I mean you have a benediction of the people of God, a blessing of the people of God from God the Father, the seven spirits of God, and from Jesus Christ to the incarnate Son. So it's Trinitarian. You have a blessing of God's people from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son. And you don't have the people of God ever blessed in the name of an angel. That would be very odd. And uh, particularly in light of the fact that John wanted to worship an angel twice later in Revelation, and he's told, don't do that by the angel. And that's important because angels are, however powerful they are and spiritual, they're not God. That's right. But they're creatures. These seven spirits are worthy of glory and honor because this is a symbolic representation of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's right. And it actually also comes up in chapter 4, where there are flaming torches, seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God before the throne. This is a picture of the menorah, so that uh, seven-sided candelabra. Actually, they weren't candles. It was just a uh, holder, and you put uh, clay lamps on top of each holder. But there were seven of them in the temple, and it represented God's presence. Again, where you have the Holy Spirit, you have the presence of God. So the seven flames, which are the seven spirits of God, is that menorah, the portrait of the Holy Spirit in his presence. It's also found in Zechariah and elsewhere. Okay, back to our passage now that we've done the preliminary. So the lamb stands with seven eyes and seven spirits gone throughout all the earth. Here's the conclusion I want to draw from this that I think is warranted by this text after a lot of careful study. The lamb is human. He's standing as one slain. Later on, there will be a song interpreting, you were slain and you purchased with your own blood some from every tribe and nation and people, etc. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity is so equipped with the Holy Spirit that he's omnipresent. He is everywhere at once through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in his flesh, but he has all knowledge and he has the power to exert his will over the whole earth. And this is why you get this portrait of the seven spirits of God and their eyes, because he can see, he can see through the spirit, he knows everything scattered throughout the whole earth, set out into the earth. He knows what's happening in his domain, and he rules his domain, which is the whole earth, through the power of the Spirit in his incarnate humanity. He's a lamb standing as one slain. So we talked about the Holy Spirit giving Christ power in his earthly life before the cross. Now you see him endued with power and anointing through the Spirit to carry out his rule, his messianic rule, which is a kingly title, after his ascension. So he still rules now, but he rules with greater power and triumph through the power of the Spirit over the whole earth, not simply in one geographical area. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.